Hey, Will I Like It listeners, do you like a good cup of coffee, one that's rich, flavorful, and ethically sourced? Then you need to check out Dynasty of Coffee, a Yorkshire-based online coffee business that offers a range of expertly crafted blends. All of their coffee is roasted to order to ensure freshness, and they're committed to nurturing the well-being of both individuals and the planet. Whether you're a fan of a bold, strong coffee or a smooth and mellow one, Dynasty of Coffee has a blend for you. Their four main blends are inspired by different British dynasties, Saxon, Viking, Tudor, and a decaf Hanoverian. So if you're looking for a delicious and ethically sourced cup of coffee, head to dynastyofcoffee.co.uk today and use the code SAXON10, that's SAXON, all capital letters, 10, at checkout for 10% off your first order. Enjoy! Hey, just a really quick message. Stay tuned right to the very end after I say goodbye to Kat and you can hear her recite Ode to the Haggis by Robert Burns. Hello and welcome back to Will I Like It? And today is another remote special because my guest is Wildcat Foraging. I was going to do this, but then I thought, actually, you might be on the other side of people's screens. She's somewhere. (laughs) Hi. So welcome, and thanks for doing the podcast. You're very, very welcome. Looking forward to it. I just wish I could be there to try the food. Yes, we will come back to the food shortly, because we've both prepared something, haven't we? So um, the idea of this one was to do a Burns Night special. And I thought... Who's the best Scottish person to get on to talk about Burns Lake? Someone that doesn't like whiskey, never used to like haggis, and doesn't eat much shortbread. Sorry. <laughs> but I do live in Burns country. Shall we get into it by maybe you can tell people, in case they don't know already, what it is that you do at Wildcat Foraging? Yeah, so basically I just share this big part of my life. I've been foraging since I was a little girl. But very often I use those skills on expeditions out with the country. And at home, it was just doing my own thing. But um, during lockdown, I decided to share it with a wider world rather than just people in courses. And, and it was a really lovely thing. And it took off. And it's just a variety of what I forage. Predominantly food, but also some medicinal uses, some craft uses. And I do quite a bit of historical foraging as well, though I'm not putting that out there quite so much at the moment. That's fine. We don't have to go into the historical stuff. Um, I um, think talking about haggis and burns, considering you know he was born in the 1700s, history is gonna gonna come up a little bit today, I imagine. Quite possibly. As I said to you before we started, I know a little bit about Burns Night, but not an awful lot. Um, and I only know a small amount about haggises. I'm putting you on the spot now because I didn't warn you about this question. But what's the plural for haggis? Oh, haggisai. Haggis eye. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. They're, they're, what sort of animal is a haggis? I don't know. Um, it's generally considered a small furry creature, though I actually think there's more than one species. Um, I think okay. there's a mountain haggis and a lowland haggis. I believe the mountain haggis, they have different sized limbs to handle the steepness of the terrain. And the lowland haggis, they, they're, yeah. they've got a thicker coat to stand all the way. So you're up uh, in Galloway, right? 
Yeah, so I'm in Dumfries and Galloway, so mm. Barnes Country. He was yes. pretty much Ayrshire and Dumfries and Galloway. Apparently, he lived in almost every single town and village going in the area. What is it about Burns that makes people celebrate him? Well, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but growing up, um, to be quite honest, growing up, I wasn't a massive fan of Burns. Um, that's going to put the cat amongst the pigeons here um, because I was kind of forced to do Burns recitals and there was a local Burns Society. It was very traditional, quite conservative. There was a lot of hierarchy and rules and regulations. Um, in fact, my dad set up a, a McGonagall Society to stir the pot. So I make McGonagall mushrooms now for my Burns supper. Um, but a lot of that's changed. Um, and I think it's Burn supper is something that people project their own identity onto. So I think it's moved away from just being about Rabbi Burns and more a celebration of all sorts of things, Scottish or Scottish heritage. And locally, something's happened that's really changed things as we have a, a big Burns supper. And that's yeah. all sorts of um, arts. It's a real, it's using Burns as a springboard for celebrating all sorts of poetry and literature and artwork and get comedians in. We even have cabaret performances in. So it's really opened it up to appeal to a lot more people. But I think very much Burns Night is what you make of it. And it's lovely yeah. that it's celebrated all around the world. Did you know how it started? Like what the idea was of well, its connection to Haggis? <laughs> I, know, I know the connection to Haggis, but... I've got a few theories that will stir the pot potentially as well. So sorry if I have done. <sighs> Controversial episode. <laughs> it could be, you know, Haggis Burns, Scottish identity, it could be. So Burns was born on the 25th of January, I believe it was, in 1759, I think. And, yeah, I think that's what um, I read. And so it's, it's back when we generally celebrate And he wrote this poem, Ode to Haggis which yeah. I can recite. I might do it at some point for you. Um, nice. And very often at the celebration, the haggis is presented, the, the ode to the haggis is spoken, and someone will cut the haggis, and everyone enjoys their haggis meats and patties. But what I'm curious about is if you look at different cultures around the world, um, I'm going to use Iceland as an example. They yeah. have a Thorobot, and the Thorobot is in January and February generally, not all of the month. And at that, <laughs> they have a dish uh, called swapa. And sorry to my Icelandic friends or any viewers if I've mispronounced those. And that is um, a dish that's very similar to haggis, uh, using a sheep's stomach. And that festival, it's not a burn knife, same thing yeah. as well, but it's a midwinter festival. Um, so it's what it's to do with, um, I believe, sorry, uh, a sort of diety of frost. Um, the son of snow, about appeasing them with a sacrifice, and the slapper was uh, a bit of a result of that sacrifice, potentially. I'm not an expert. So, is Burns Night celebrated on the 25th of January, because that's when Rabbi Burns was born, or is it celebrated because there was another festival that maybe predated that, or it became tradition to have the haggis, or... Yeah. It was a leaner time of the year, so maybe people saw the benefits of using things like liver and offal that's high in iron. 
um, at that leaner time of year when maybe there's less nutrients available, less variety, or maybe just <laughs> a bit more desperate and turning to using all parts of the animal. I don't know. This is all conjecture, but there's a lot of questions to be thrown up surrounding yeah, yeah. Barton's Night and that time and tradition. So whether it's actually really truly a Scottish tradition or not, I don't know. Well, I, I have read that potentially haggises weren't Scottish originally. There's some Roman dishes, um, and I think even Greek, um, where basically what they used to do is when they were out hunting, the offal doesn't keep very well. So they used to chop it up, season it, cover it in salt, shove it into a stomach, and it would keep for a few weeks so you could eat it later. Interesting, yeah. Not necessarily called haggis, but it's the same idea. No, I could quite believe it. Although, like, a lot of what's in my blood is rebelling against the idea of haggis not being Scottish. From what I've done in my, my research, because, um, well, actually, I'm, I'm writing a, a book at the moment and it looks at the connection between um, cultures and food and foraging. And mm. so I've been looking a bit into the haggis. And, I mean, it just seems that across cultures and throughout time, We've had a tendency to shove organs, so to speak, <laughs> into um, into sheep's stomach or other yeah. animals' stomach. Yeah. I should maybe rephrase that. <laughs> but we have, we we and we you know yeah. we stomachs for carrying water. It's um, actually a, a very useful material, and mm. so we've got the likes of what you've just described, which I didn't know about, and I'd like to learn more, or the slaughter. Um, where sometimes with the slacker they would um, uh, process it in a sort of way to mm. have more of a preserving effect. And when I was, um, I was involved in an expedition in Siberia, and they were using sheep's stomachs there for making cheesy. But also there was a Russian version of the haggis. Um, right. It tended to use brains in it as well. But once again, it was the same idea shove it all in the stomach or make pouches out of the stomach, boil mm. it for ages. And, and they've all got that mixture of some sort of flour, often rye or barley or oats, and something to spice it in there. And mm. I mean, I looked up that Russian dish prior to coming and chatting to you and what I find, you know, it's at least ninth century. And our oldest record in the UK that's written of the haggis that I could find was in um, 1400s, I believe. I'm sure you've come across the same thing. But it, in that one, it is referred to as a haggis or a hoggis or a hossis or something like that yeah. in, in that book. And that was the earliest reference I could find in the UK. But it wasn't in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, Boundaries for the country were different. Then. Where I lived was part of Northumbria for a long, long time, and um, yeah. so there's that to take into consideration too. And I've also found reference to the origins of the word haggis, um, potentially being Norse, um, and I think a rough translation of the word that's derived from would mean to hack. Okay. Um, so the think the thinking was to hack food. Once again, I'm I'm no expert. I'm sorry. <laughs> With an it's all good. Neither am I. It's just an interest, exactly. 
I mean, I, I've read a few places. I didn't know about the word, but I have read. I can't remember who it was, but there was a Scot that claimed it was Viking. But I'm not really sure what the evidence for that would be. Um, it's possible. Like you say, we've been doing it for a long time. That's People fair. need food. They don't want to waste things for whatever yeah. reason. And the stomach's a handy bag to cook things in. So. Yes. So I had the joy of making one today. Yeah. <laughs> I say joy. <laughs> Uh, it was an interesting experience. So I've eaten them before, but never made one. Um, I couldn't get a stomach. So I've used what's called a bung. Oh, ox bung is basically the very end of the intestine. So it's like the largest oh. bit. Um, yeah, it's not the most pleasant smelling thing to do. <laughs> um, I use some local goat. So I've got some goat pluck, uh, which is usually heart, lungs, liver. Um, I've checked the kidneys in as well, and I couldn't get lungs. So actually, there's no lungs in mine. Uh, Although an interesting side note, I don't know if you know, it's banned from being imported to America, I read as well. What, haggis? Yes. Or because the because FDA, the FDA won't allow it to be imported because it contains lungs. Oh, my goodness. I could have a career in haggis smuggling. <laughs> Shall I reveal to everyone what my haggis looks like? And you can tell me whether it looks like what you'd expect a haggis to look like? I don't know. I would love to see your haggis. Da, 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 da. I should probably just pick it up, shouldn't I? It might still be hot because I did literally. It's okay. It's that fish. That so looks like a haggis to me. That's the bun, as I said, and then stuffed with all the goat. Now I tried to vike it up a bit. Okay. Me being me. Um, so a lot of them contain things like mace, um, nutmeg, that kind of stuff. So I've left that out. Um, I'd have to check my notes, but I did make up my own seasoning. So I don't even know if it's going to taste good. <laughs> uh, right. Where is my haggis recipe? Yeah, so it's the pluck of the two goats. Uh, there's four teaspoons of pepper. Uh, three teaspoons of garlic salt, two coriander seed, two dried sage, two caraway, and then two chopped onions, a packet of suet, which is about 240 grams, and 500 grams of oats. Nice. It's a pretty standard recipe apart from the seasoning, but I thought without the mace or whatever to lift it up and the nutmeg, I thought, what can I use that they had? Um, so that's what I've got, and I'm serving it with... A neep. A turnip. <laughs> which I have roasted. So you can see it's oh, splitting. Nice. Um, and yeah, I can even peel it. Look. And so that'll be my version of your neeps and tatties, as I believe you do up there. Yes. And which they also yeah. generally do with slacker as well. So, yeah. Though obviously the tatties, I mean, we're both being actors. We're both Viking being actors. We know that one, don't we? Yeah, yeah. So I, I've stuck with the neat, and I thought rather than mash it, I'll just roast it up, which is quite a nice I'm way of doing it. It's like a jacket potato, but sweeter. Oh, yeah. yeah. I like them salty as well. And it's I curious. Now, there's a challenge, eating that haggis without, without a fork. Well, as I'm a Saxon. <laughs> oh, you get one, yes. 
if I'm wealthy enough. Yes, possibly. We could we could have a go. A spoon would work for a haggis, though. It's very fitting, yeah. though, that you have got a very rich, expensive fork, though, because some of the um, spices that you've used, I think, though they were available, they weren't you know, right on your doorstep getting grown. They'd be imported. So I think your haggis would be quite a quite a rich a fancy haggis. haggis. Fancy haggis. I'm I a fancy do. Saxon. <laughs> You're a fancy Saxon with your Saxon headwear right now. Um, oh yes, I come from the future. <laughs> I also so you, made haggis. Yeah. And I also tried to edit it a little bit to the Viking time period. Um, okay. So not so much with my McGonagall mushroom sauce and with my dad. Um, but with the rest of it. So I don't know if you're wanting to see the, the wildcat foraged haggis. Now, if, if this is the one you've posted online before, then I already know what it looks like. It's not. This is it's a new not. One. I did make that one, Ooh. which okay. uh, I've presented it rather boringly, but that's that one here. And okay, yeah. Essentially the same mixture, but this one's baked rather than yeah. boiled. And yeah. I mean, it's a total cheat. My haggis has no meat in it whatsoever um, because... I'm sure well, some people will be happy with that decision. Yeah, and also it's easier to forage mushrooms for me than to like rugby tackle a sheep <laughs> and deal with all that. Um, but I thought, no, that's cheating. Uh, I need to try something different anyway. So I thought I'd create a version that was also boiled, um, that didn't have suet, that didn't have those nice things to hold it together. And I have created this monstrosity. Ooh. And instead of, um, well, I can't have patties anyway. So um, I've done parsnips. Like, parsnips, nice. Uh, I like a parsnip. And my McGonagall mushroom sauce. Lovely. So, so um, reveal what's in it or is that secret? Yeah, I absolutely. I want to tell you what's in it because I think it's very exciting. Um, so the haggis itself, I've used ingredients that would predominantly be available Um there's a mixture of barley in there, which helps it keep their shape, um, yeah. along with oats. And we've got oyster mushrooms in there, which are available at this time of year. We don't forage them in the nearby woods. And oyster mushrooms are just amazing. I could go on an absolute tangent about them and winter mushrooms. Um, I've got velvet shanks in there as well, another winter fungi. And I've got um, the rosettes, this little limp bit of greenery. Yeah. <laughs> an indication of the cuckoo flower that's in there to add a pepperiness. Um, I've chopped a bunch of hogweed seeds in there. They've got sort of almost cardamony spice to them, um, yeah. but it needed quite a lot for being boiled, so I don't think they'll... Can I ask you a slight detour on that one? Yeah. About the hogweed seed? Because mm -hmm. I heard recently that they crossbreed with giant hogweed, and so potentially the seeds of hogweed can be dangerous. So the main problem with the giant hogweed in particular is the effect that it can have on your skin. And mm. It can make your skin really, really photosensitive. Okay. Um, I have to look into the crossbreeding with the giant hogweed. I'm really mm. lucky where I live. Very rarely see giant hogweed. Um, enough by the motorways to be able to show the differences. But yeah. I have to look into the crossover. Um, I think... Mm. The key thing there is being able to really identify your common hogweed and your giant hogweed. And if you're somewhere like me where you're lucky to have 
very little of the giant hogweed that gives you a really good opportunity to get to know the whole plant. But with the hogweed, um, mm. I wouldn't necessarily class it as a beginner foraging plant because it's in the carrot family and that's where we've got some of our most deadly plants, yeah. like hemlock, water drop work and hemlock, hemlock and you know all that as well. But that's curious. <laughs> I'm going to... I'm gonna. Uh, try and read up on that or like pick your brains about that later because I hadn't well, it, yeah it's only something I heard recently um but yeah mm. I don't the evidence is to back that up or whether it's just people scaring people from foraging it being over cautious I know you have to be cautious um but yeah I don't know what the evidence is that they're crossbreeding or if they even can do you know what I mean like mm. I'm I guess curious they, mm. um yeah. but the common hogweed seed itself, if you are confident in your identification and you try a little bit, it has got an amazing taste. And if you, if you forage it mm. green um, and then allow it to dry out, rather than foraging it when it dries out, and um, which yeah. is a situation. Um, and this is what I find fascinating about foraging, is it's such a big topic that, mm. that goes all over the world, all throughout history. You can yeah. never master it. There's always new things to discover and explore. And what I've been fascinated by is our own native spices. Because if we look at Viking, and, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here. <laughs> if it's we right. look at Viking <laughs> and Anglo-Saxon times and stuff, you get yeah. quite a variety of spices available to us. But a fair few of them aren't necessarily native. Or we mm. were lucky and the Romans brought them in. But they might not have made it all the way up here or handled the weather. So... Sure. Um, we see things like pepper and things like cumin. And we've actually, or things like cloves and medieval times a lot. We've actually got our own native versions of these plants or seeds or whatever, and that it's not the same species, but we have our own native equivalent flavors. So things like cumin from the hogweed, a clove flavor from wood avens. Um, mm. which is also known as cold root. We have fungi that taste like curry. Like it's just, and, and we have a plant, a wonderful plant called Arsmart um, uh, that has a real chilly, peppery kind of taste. And we have the peppery mm. belief, which is like Sichuan pepper. It's, it's amazing. And I want to explore how much these plants were potentially used in history and if there's any chance that they sort of disappeared from our knowledge because these imported spices became a stasis symbol. And I think there's a lot of curiosity there. And I think we can be very quick to say, oh, no, they definitely didn't have that. But they had this quite expensive thing that was imported and used it all the time. Um, yeah. Whereas I think we should actually be asking a lot of questions. And I think those questions should be based around what was the cultural context at the time? Mm. And what was available? What plants were native and, and abundant at the time? Yeah. And I think if we start doing that, we might find within our own um, our own cult country's culture or our own history um, that the food was a lot more varied or the nutrients were a lot more varied. I don't know. I just think we should question things and explore. Hmm. That was the tangent from the haggis. So my haggis is my attempt to explore. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I distracted you by asking about the um, hogweed. It's easily done. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we should probably go back to what was in your, your recipe, because people are probably still wondering. We got to hogweed. 
Yeah, so um, I'll just recap again then. So um, a mixture of barley, of oats, of cuckoo flour, bittercress, um, some hogweed seeds in there. Predominantly, the star of the show is the oyster mushroom, uh, chopped up really, really fine. Some velvet shanks in there as well. Uh, some oats and barley. That's kind of about it. I did add um, a marmite to it. <laughs> Just for the flavour, I'm taking this and feeding my mum later, and I wanted to see what it would do. Not yeah. uh, a historically accurate uh, ingredient. Mm, did nor, they have marmite? <laughs> and did they love it or hate it? Oh. Um, and uh, a little bit of molasses in there as well, um, because I didn't have confidence it would stay together. But I actually, I take that out in the next recipe because it has it formed a really good like almost um and I, I cooked it in a in a bit of lint so, yeah. have you tasted and it yet no that's going to be the big reveal yeah. and the McGonagall mushroom sauce yeah because I think it's worth mention um it's not authentic at all um it's a mixture of wood ears whiskey and cream and peppercorn but what's brilliant is the wood ear because um I had dried I had some dried ones I collected earlier in the year they so readily absorb everything. So what yeah. you do with them is you take the wood ear and you rehydrate them in a whiskey and water mix. You yeah. want to mix it because they're really thirsty. And um, and then they'll they'll swell up and get really floppy. A mm. sign of drunkenness if ever there was one. And that's when you chop them up finely. And you just make a sort of pepper. Um, cream peppercorn sauce like we normally would and chuck them in but I can't vouch that all the alcohol would be cooked off because it's within the mushrooms and any leftover um, whiskey woodier mushrooms uh, are really good dipped in chocolate so, really? yeah also not authentic but that's an interesting nice like a sweet savoury is that all? it's it's yeah, it's more sweet than anything. I mean, the wood mm. ears, some folk think they've got a strong taste. I've never found them to have a strong taste, but they've got that sort of gelatinous texture when they fill up. Um, mm. And um, it's, it's just really good for any kind of booze. I've made a, a sort of um, chocolate jaffa cake type thing with them filled with an orange liqueur dipped in the mm. chocolate. They're great for that sort of thing. So nice. they have some burnt like chocolates as well. <laughs> And you already told me you don't like whiskey as a truce. You revealed the secret. Sorry, I'll cut this bit. <laughs> but I'm working on it. <laughs> my foraging's a bit safer than yours because I don't particularly know my mushrooms, I must admit. Um, despite my online name. I only well, forage we a little bit. We shall go foraging for mushrooms together sometime. So I've got some blackberry whiskey. Now that I will try. It's very nice. Um, yeah, we'll we'll have to meet up at some point. We keep saying it, um, but you live a long We're way like, away. Yeah, like eight hours away or something like that. But at some point we will. I came up there a long, long time ago. Probably in about I don't know, probably about fifteen years ago now. Oh right. And um, stayed in a caravan site and. Went around the Galloway forests, and oh. I think it was around the time it was awarded Dark Sky Award. 
Oh, that is that ring any bells? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is what drew our attention to it. And we're like, oh, we'll go up there. And you had red kites had just been reintroduced. Um, oh, you mentioned which, they were introduced. They oh, were yeah. starting to establish more. So I've digressed again. We've gone back from our haggis talk <laughs> to red kites. I know. Is that because <laughs> you're secretly me. scared to try your haggis? Or... Uh, no, I've had haggis before. There's nothing in it. Well, I say there's nothing I don't like. I don't really like kidneys. I've made that quite publicly known. But I ate them. Um, I did an episode at a goat farm and she deliberately served me kidneys <laughs> knowing that I'd said I don't like them um yeah but they're, they're I mean you know four kidneys in I've made five of these wow so I probably won't taste the kidney it's going to be mostly liver and oats the hearts are obviously in there too but I don't mind eating heart so I can try it um yeah, yeah I'm personally starving um, so I'm well up for trying mine. I'm going to jump down from my seat. And shall I? There you go. Look, you can see the unveiling of the haggis. Now, I believe it was supposed to recite the Ode to the Haggis now, right? Yes, the Ode to the Haggis. I don't which know. I will do so. at separate times. And <laughs> <laughs> I've got it in front of me. But um, yeah. Hmm. Uh, so we'll pretend we've just done that. And you do, you need to stab it, give it a proper like stab and gash open its guts. Lovely. Oh. Lengthwise. <laughs> Ooh, that looks distinctly haggisy. Shall I do mine? It smells. Oh, All right. So I should have cut it the other way, so I failed. Do you want me to go yeah. and cook another one? Well, you've got five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm planning to use these at events this year. How, long, how are you going to keep them? I'll freeze them. Oh, okay. cooked, the, the offal was cooked and then blended, um, but potentially I could freeze them and cook them. Be a quick thing to do at a show. Boil them up. Well, if, if we ever do go to one of the same shows together, I'd love to try a bit given doing this podcast and I could always try and whip up another one of mine yeah. so that's the inside of my oh, haggis looks almost like a cake from here what does it I'm Have you made it with haggis <laughs> cake or haggis all right let's give this or one a haggis. go all right should we go at the same time <laughs> it's uh, like a bowl I'm, look I can just <laughs> I'm, I'm having I'm having spoon issues hang on oh wait there's no way I can put that in my mouth Ooh, okay. I might want to edit that bit out. Okay. The fork's not Here's... ideal for this, but we'll dink it or sink it, as they say. Hmm. That's Ooh. actually all right. Ooh. Mine tastes like haggis. It's got no awful in it at all. And it tastes like, oh, that's pretty good. So it tastes like an actual haggis. That's genius if you've managed that. <laughs> well, the oyster mushrooms, um, they're a species that I use to make a lot of like fake steaks and mm. meats and stuff. I don't know if you've seen before, I do like barbecue oyster mushroom steaks and yeah. spice and stuff. And it's mostly full of oyster mushrooms. And to be honest, I don't think haggis tastes particularly meaty anyway. It's more peppery and spicy. 
Yeah, I'm getting a lot of pepper from this one. It's quite nice, actually, to be honest. That's um, I could definitely eat more of this. I was going to make a terrible joke. I was going to say, oh, I can't eat this. It tastes awful. Oh. The woodier recipe should... sauce is lovely. I do see so myself. I'm going to try a bit of my turnip as well. As is tradition. Mm. That haggis is actually quite spicy. Considering there's four teaspoons of pepper for nearly three kgs of other ingredients. It's really come through, has it? Mm. It's quite, yeah, peppery, spicy. Um, I don't know if you'll see. So I did one of the episodes that I told you I lost. We cooked mm. turnips in the fire. And these were done in the oven. But um, you see they go really soft mm. and gooey and... <laughs> A bit like a, a sweet jacket potato. Lovely. Well, mm. I don't have any tatties, as we said. They're not Viking. But I do have whiskey. Oh, I'm quite jealous. Which Even though I don't is... like whiskey, the blackberry. <laughs> I'm good. Um, I might, if I've got some spare, I'll try and send you some. That'd be fantastic. Because I think I've got some more of these dinky bottles, so they're, they're only sort of a couple of shots, I guess. But And the slow gin that you sent me a couple of years ago, or whenever it was, was really, really good. So thank you. Nice. You're welcome. That was um, when you had your accident too, wasn't it? It survived a car crash. It did survive a car crash, yeah. <laughs> Not to divert. Crashes. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it became one of the first things I drank after said car crash. Yeah. Uh, Have you tried that whiskey yet? Yes. Nice. Blanche. It's delicious. Um, I made a forager's rum as well, which is just made throughout the year. Get a big rum pot or a jar and you chuck mm -hmm. in whatever you've got, whenever you've got it. And you just make nice. sure you keep the rum topped up. So yeah. it's always submerged and you add a bit of sugar every time you add some more fruit. So I couldn't tell you what's in it because it's just kind of done. As soon as you get fruits coming from the garden or wild fruits, whatever you've got, just gets How chucked How beautiful up. is that though? It's an actual story of the year's foraging. Yeah, yeah. Really nice. Form. I'm up for rum. I'm always up for rum. I made a bond. I'll try and send you one of those. Oh, I'm liking this. Shall we just keep chatting until you commit to sending me all your different foods? I've been watching well, all the uh, status updates with your different food recipes. So. Oh, there's been quite a lot lately because of the other episode I did at the ATC with the manager where we just drank. <laughs> yeah. It was actually, well, I'll yeah. happily do one of those episodes with you sometime. Just <laughs> drink. No. Um, so I'm just looking on my phone because I remember I wrote some other facts down that I wanted to bring up. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I mentioned that they were banned. Um, ah, Guinness World Record. Do you know that one? For the no, largest haggis? Know. Oh, dear. I'd like to think. Uh, so it was made by Halls of Scotland in All 2014. Right. Uh, so fairly recently, um, 1,010 kgs. What did they put it in? 
It's 2.8 meters long. What, what stomach did they use? What? Eh? The record doesn't specify what it was. Uh, I don't know. Amazing. An illegally imported elephant stomach. No, I'm not. I don't, mm. I don't think it was. I'm not going to uh, get myself into yeah. some sort of legal dispute. At all. <laughs> it was on the, the Guinness World Records website. Um, so ah. they yeah. only tell you the facts. They don't tell you what was in it. I'm assuming it was authentic haggis if it's mm. the world record. So it wow. must have been some. Maybe they sewed several together. Oh, yeah, you could do that, I suppose. Or... I mean, the but if the bung that I've used is an intestine, maybe they just kept it because intestines are long, aren't they? That would be a very long, very long haggis. It's two yeah, point two point eight meters. I'm having long. an inferiority complex now about mine. <laughs> uh, have you heard about haggis hurling? Yes, I have. But There's a record for that too. What's that? How far? 217 feet. Jeez, oh. I'm guessing that wasn't the 2.5 or whatever metre long haggis, that one. Like a javelin. <laughs> God, that would be difficult to throw, wouldn't it? <laughs> to be fair, I reckon uh, a haggis would knock anyone out if going hard enough. I reckon they're Oh, yeah, definitely. They're, they're quite dense once they're cooked, aren't they? Yeah, you could proper clobber someone with a haggis. I could see you like at a now on the battlefield just coming armed with your five haggises. Launching <laughs> <laughs> them. So I will, I've come back to more, so people can probably make their own judgment of whether I like it or not. But I'm still, I don't think the fork works very well. Hmm. I'm having yeah. soon. Maybe I just need to go in with a bare hat. <laughs> There's yeah. Scottish people not just going with their teeth and just. <laughs> oh, dear me, look at this cultural slander going on. <laughs> Who oh, needs knives? <laughs> no. Mm. I'm quite happy with that. I thought because of the spices that I use, like with the plants. Yeah. Because it was boiled to death, um, I thought that I maybe would lose a lot of that flavour, but I'm really, really surprised it can change. Every much as much as the roast one that I've used. So yeah, I'm looking forward to actually giving it to my mum later on. Mm. Uh, my wee mum. Uh, and maybe if I can vote some friends in to try it and see what they think. Um, just amazing what can be done with a bunch of wild ingredients and molasses and marmite. <laughs> but I don't think it needs that. So. You're going to have to make it again now to find out. I will. I'll have to make it again. Mm. And what I'll do is I'll make it again. I'll take some, try and take some nice wee photos of it and I'll pop a recipe up on my Wildcat Foraging socials on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so it's probably going in the book as well once we find that bit more yeah. can, can see what they think for themselves mm. I can see why they drink whiskey with it <laughs> I do try with the whiskey I like to cook with whiskey and I do flavour whiskey and quite like it then 
and I keep mm. going into disability to try and like it, but I'm just not, just not there yet, I'm afraid. It took me a while. But mm. uh, I'll happily try any written thing through the post. Mm. I'm making a terrible mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm wishing I could actually try your hardness. Mm. Well, mm. I wonder how I can send one. I've got five or four now. Um, might be able to ship it. I think it may just have to be the year where we actually meet up in real life at a show. Hmm. Yeah. I'm going to be traveling about a lot more next year and I might actually go south a couple of times, which is not that common for me. <laughs> I'm coming up to Moorforge at Easter, which is 90% of the way to you, I think. Oh, yeah. Kind of across yeah, the water. That, that could be a winner, and um, I'm a lot so, more free to move about than I so, yeah. And your mate Hamish is coming too. Yes, I believe. He said. He um, is, yeah. Yeah. So, so um, maybe if you fancy popping yeah. along. I'd love that. I'll bring a, a vegetarian forage haggis or some other foraging goodies or some fish goodies or something we can record in person yeah that would be nice yeah i've got got plans with hamish so maybe we'll do something together yeah make him some pictish food or something i'm sure he would love that (laughs) i know nothing about pictish food so i'd have to do some research but i've got till april so Okay. We might be able to do something. I think that is something we should have a chat about another time as well. Yes. <laughs> we'll come so back to it. We've been this stuff for a while now. So I think, yeah, we should have a chat. <laughs> we'll come back to that one then. <laughs> so you're in the Glasgow Vikings group. So I'm kind of in both Glasgow and Galloway. Um, so I didn't know I'm there was a Galloway group, actually. Ah, this is what the shield's for. I'll go anywhere that they'll have me, to be quite honest. I've been lucky to have hooked up with, like, some Vikings in Iceland and Poland mm. and, and near, near Finland and stuff. And, yeah, people are always happy to be fed, and I'm happy to see people and fight. <laughs> uh, how long have you done the Vikings reenactment side of things? You know, I was trying to work that out earlier on today, and it's over a decade at least. But I've always had an interest in that aspect of history. I mean, as a little girl, I was kind of fascinated by either fantasy stories or um, mythology, Celtic mythology, Viking mythology. And um, I had a real interest in indigenous people around the world. And then I realized we had our own equivalent as well. Um, and yeah, met a blacksmith in a local woodland um, who was setting up a local group and it went from there. And it's been a fantastic thing to be involved in. Mm. It's been a great platform actually for sharing a lot of um, my foraging stuff and some of my bushcraft stuff as well. Whereas prior to that, um, my knowledge was just courses that people could pay a certain amount of money to go on a couple of hundred yeah. or whatever which is fine but not necessarily accessible to everyone 
And I want to share this with everyone possible. So being involved in a reenactment society has really allowed me to do that with the general public and, and with other reenactors. Lovely. Yeah. It's a good hobby, I, I think. Met, yeah. I've met yourself through it, if not in real life. I don't know if we met through that because I think I followed your page. So I think it's oh. independent of the reenactment thing, I think. Well, there you go. Oh, well, we don't need something. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there's questions that anyone that's watched already will know are coming. I ask everybody. And the first one is if you had an unlimited budget, what would be your dream project? That is a very, very difficult question because I have a million and one things in my mind that I'd like to do. Um, in terms of like from the historical food and the reenactment yeah. perspective, and I'm yeah. hoping no one will feel this, I would love to set up and fund and document an expedition from the time period um, yeah. at different times of the year traveling a river system or along the coast um either viking time period or like even going right back to the megalithic or something yeah. like that there's finds on the isle of rum which i love um of over eight thousand years old and exploring mm. the food and what's available at the time and something like really hardcore because i love my wild camping and i love my mountaineering as well it'd be cool to document that or mm. Um, my background was actually in conservation expeditions from when I was yeah. really young. It started with like studying snow leopard populations in Siberia. It would be really, really cool to revisit a lot of the countries that I've, I've worked and volunteered in, um, but really uh, looking at food traditions there and to explore new countries as well, looking at the food and foraging traditions, particularly regarding like festivals and celebrations mm. throughout the year that makes sense so yeah some sort of big expedition film <laughs> which we don't have to go into actually but i should have asked you about that earlier your expeditions and stuff we didn't cover any of that yeah. maybe that'll be for well, another episode yeah if you want people are welcome to talk with me about them whenever they want mm. um i was very lucky i got involved on a pretty extreme expedition from a young age and then went elsewhere um out to the Amazon, uh, what uh, wolves in, in, in America as well, and latterly did a lot more in South Africa. And mm. a, a bit of a sideline in all of them is um, I met lots of very interesting people and um, sometimes some indigenous populations, indigenous people as well, and um, got to explore a lot of traditional food um, and ways of preserving and all sorts of things. What I didn't do was write things down. <laughs> so that's why I'd like to go back and revisit a lot and write mm. things down at time. <laughs> Make an interesting book. Another one. <laughs> Another one in the pipeline. <laughs> you need that unlimited budget then. Yeah, yeah, that unlimited bu budget. Yeah, publishing books yeah. would be another good thing too. Mm. Yeah, a few things. <laughs> so the next question is. Do you think you could survive on a Viking Age diet? Yeah, I think yeah. I could. <laughs> well, I've kind of actually, I don't know if you know this, I've experimented mm. with it for a couple of months at a time, at different time periods in the year. Um, mm. I've not done a full year yet because like, 
that gets in the way. Um, uh, there is a fantastic forager called Momo Wild, Monica Wild, who has spent a year living purely off of wild food. Um, and I think, I, I don't know her personally, but I highly recommend mm. checking it out. Um, but yeah, I've experimented with it. Um, I've lived on expedition rations and stuff. I think I could. Um, I'd miss like all the creative potentials and modern ingredients that brought us. But... Well, that leads into the next question, doesn't it? So you can go straight into that one, which is, is oh. there any food that you'd miss on a Viking Age diet? You know what? People aren't going to believe this, but I don't think so. Um, I think I think because of the expeditions, like I have been on rations, normally when yeah. I'm on a certain diet for like two weeks, I'm not interested in anything else. And a genuinely significant amount of the food I eat is foraged. Um, I mean, I'd be inclined to say chocolate, but if I don't have it for a week or two, I'm not bothered. Um, maybe coffee when I desperately need woken up, but metal beads kind of do the same job for me. I don't know. I'd miss other things. I'd miss our medicine. Um, I'd miss decent yeah. bras and pockets. And <laughs> but not food. Um, no, I think I'd, I'd probably relish the challenge to begin with. Mm. Um, I think I might miss um, the sort of availability of like berries out of season. Um, yeah. Like yeah. I was a bit of a ramble. You can tell I need no. a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know. Are you a vegetarian? Because you eat mostly forage stuff, right? Mostly not... forage stuff. Mm. Um, I also uh, I eat roadkill. So that's where most of my meat comes from. Um, I was very lucky. A lovely, lovely forager called Fergus uh, taught me a little bit about roadkill um, foraging um, on some previous workshops in the distance past, and I've looked into it a bit more. So being mm. able to identify what we can and can't eat, um, it's not as shocking as people think. And I think it's a real way to honour the animal. It's not just a carcass rotten at the side of the road. You know, someone taking it away and taking the time takes a lot of time mm. to butcher it and I'll take the skin and I'll tan the skin as well sometimes and it's dominantly deer and bird not yeah. gone as far as other animals and um, and the results can be very very tasty so it kind of fits well, in it's an extension of your foraging isn't it just yeah. foraging the carcass yeah. that should be the name of a book <laughs> oh, foraging the carcass culture. I'm basically just tight and like free food. No, I'm not. That's not the reason I There's nothing wrong with eating free food if you can get it. You know, it's why wouldn't you? I think foraging, I mean, for me, and I guess we haven't really covered this yet, um, why I got into the foraging. And for mm. me, it really does stem from a love of the wild and a passion for the wild. And, and wanting to protect it. That's why I was going off and doing my conservation expeditions. And yeah. I had a period where I was unwell and I thought, oh, I'm having to do stuff closer to home. This is in the distant past. Mm. Got into bushcraft instruction and then realised that, well, we can kind of just focus on foraging in itself. And it's such a great way to connect people to the environment around them 
and I try to teach it in a way that's not just thinking of these plants as a resource and stripping mm. them trying to teach it in a, in a mindful way and a way that just allows people to really get something other than just food out of the process and, and food is so intrinsic to who we are as people and mm. it's involved in every celebration throughout the world generally speaking um or certainly many it's, it's a big part of cultural identity it's a, it's a part of uh, crossing barriers and borders and yeah there's quite a lot mm. to it nothing at all at the same time but yeah it's a great way to build that connection yeah, I think if people foraged more, then they'd probably respect the environment more as well because you're taking your food from that same source. So they kind of go hand in hand, don't they? I hope so. And and there's a mm. bit of a mindful element to it as well because all of a sudden you're walking and you have to walk slow to forage, don't you? I mean, you know this. It's, and especially with fungi and stuff, like you're searching and you have to take mm. your time and they're suddenly focusing on smaller things and and it gives you being out and about gives you space to deal with whatever's going on in your head and mm. yeah it's just a really useful thing for, for people to do in a respectful way mm. awesome and probably a lot more variety of nutrients if you, if you graze lots of different yeah and more seasonal seasonal eating as well, which is what they would have done historically. It's probably better for us to be not eating the same things week in, week out. Yeah, and have responsibility for what you're eating as well. Yeah, there's all sorts of elements. Mm. What's the worst food that you've ever eaten? Oh, the worst food? Um, well, I'm one of these people that will try anything. And because mm. of my expeditions, I have tried all sorts. Um, actually yeah there is a worse food um so I was on I think it was it one of my Amazon expeditions and um there were these lovely guys two guys from Germany and they were on cooking duty and a bunch of my expeditions generally breakfast is porridge I never used to be a porridge fan burnt porridge especially is pretty horrific um (laughs) But these guys decided to liven up the porridge by making salsa porridge, which was mm. exactly that porridge with salsa, quite a quite a spicy hot salsa mixed in. And funnily enough, they never got on cooking duty again, which was a fantastic gameplay because you had to get up at like four thirty in the morning when we were doing cooking duty. So they probably did it on purpose. I don't know. There's a question mark to the sea, but. Yeah, mm. um, even thinking about it now, and I've got a hardy stomach. No, I'm good. <laughs> I must admit, I didn't expect that answer. That's <laughs> that's I'm an annoyed. odd. Oh, wow, that's thrown me a little bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I almost need to try it now. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. I tell you what, try it sometime. <laughs> try yeah. it. I'll make it for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next question. What is the most memorable meal you've ever had? That is a really difficult question. Or, yeah, oh, I don't know how to answer that one. Um, I guess it could be memorable in a good way or a bad way. I mean, yeah. salsa porridge was memorable. Um, <laughs> and a couple of hours later as well. 
Um, so, <laughs> you know what, actually, thinking about it, I'm very, very lucky. Um, because of where I've been and the stuff I've done, there's been some really tasty meals or mm. memorable because of the places we're in or the people I'm talking to. And I've been really lucky with Wildcat Foraging that I can get quite creative with it and I have had some nice surprises when things have worked out. Oh, I really don't know how to answer that. I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll pin it down to a memorable meal in the last year. And I okay. would say it was one of, I'd made a forage cake. I was visiting someone in the, in, up in Torridon and, and I'd made, mm. I think it was a elderflower and rose petal, whatever forage cake. Mm. And um, I took it with me when I went up a mountain. And um, I did uh, some Munro's and Ben Alligan. Um, which are the hardest mountains I've, I've done in Scotland. And it was yeah. a glorious day. And there's a lot of like rock climbing in it, the grade five. And I got to the top and I, I was doing a solo hike, got to the top of, of the second mountain that's like that. And like it's hundreds of meters dropped down below me. And there's mm. a raven soaring down beneath me and above and around. And um, I was, I was knackered, but I sat there with this bit of cake that I'd made looking over the mountain. And years ago, I struggled to walk half a mile. Mm. Um, and I never thought I'd be able to do these mountains. So it wasn't the best cake I'd ever made in the world. But up there, it was somehow it was just that much more special. And um, yeah. whenever I make that, I have out it was a rose elderflower cake. When I make that again, I'll always think of that moment. Yeah. So I, I love how food connects us to moments and achievements. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's probably last year's most memorable. That's a great answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So the very, very last question. So you've died and your relatives are preparing your grave goods. What food or drink are you taking to the feast in Valhalla? Oh, well, if it was just to end on a cheerful note, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, well, if it was up to my relatives, I've no idea what would go in there. Um, I think definitely some sort of wild mushroom would have to go in there Um, for wild cat foraging. Someone would probably put some meat in there for the Viking link. To be honest, I'd rather they popped in some of my birch sap wine or my rhubarb champagne. Though that could be quite lethal because my champagne has had the tendency to explode everywhere. So that could make the, the funeral quite an interesting <laughs> one. These bottles just going off. Go to Valhalla with a pop. <laughs> with a bang, yeah. Um, I definitely mm. hope some chocolate went in there. Um, Ideally, some of Charlotte Flowers and Wild Chocolate, which you should check out. Sorry, I'm doing a plug for someone else on the podcast. <laughs> but they you go ahead. favorite. And, mm. um, oh, how cool would this be? If someone could, like, go to the top of a mountain and get the heather for some heather ale or some rowan berries or rowan yeah. jelly and put that in. 
And then if someone could go into the nearby forest that I wander and get some wild mushrooms, and if someone could go to the nearby coast and collect some of the seaweed that I eat, that would be really smart, wouldn't it? All these different like locations that I've wandered and bring them all together. But that won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I should have thought of this because this could be a two two part question, really, couldn't it? You could have the answer of what would you want them to put in and what would they put in? Because mm. they're very different answers. I think a lot of that would get you in before it got put in. <laughs> the <laughs> chocolate and stuff. No, I think I think they'd probably put in some wild mushrooms. I'd be I wouldn't be bothered whatever they put in. <laughs> um, I'd be off heading on my adventures wherever I was. So. So if anyone wants to follow you that doesn't already. So just look up Wildcat Foraging, cat with a K and cat, or cat with no daughter when I'm a reenactor. And it's Wildcat Foraging on Facebook and Wildcat Foraging on Instagram. Um, feel free to get in touch with me there. Best place at the moment. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Stop the record. And thanks everyone for watching and see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Ode to Haggis. Fair fire on a sonsy face, great chieftain o' the pudding race. Aboon the ma ye attack your place, paints tripe or firm. Well, are ye worthy o' a grace as lang's mere? The groaning trencher there ye fell, your hurdies like a distant hill. Your pin would help to mend a mill in times of need, while through your pores the dews distill like amber bead. His knife see rustic labour dicht and cut you up with ready slip, trenching your gushing entrails breath like honey ditch. And then, oh, what a glorious sight, warm, reeking, rich. Then, horn for horn, they stretch and strive, deal take the hindmost on, they drive, Till all their wheels swallowed kites belly and bent like drums. The old good man mayst like to ride, the thanket hums. If there the hour his French ragout, or all the that would stow a sow, or fricassee would make her spew a perfect scunner, looks down with sneering, scornful view on sicker than her. Poor devil! See him o'er as trash, as feckless as a withered rash, his spindle shank a good whiplash, his knee a nip, through bloody flood or field to dash. Oh, how unfit. But mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread. Clap in his wally knee a blade, he'll make it whistle. And legs and arms and heads will snet like taps of thristles. Ye powers, what mak mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare. Old Scot Scotland wants nae skinking ware that yachts and luggies, but if you wish her grateful prayer, dear a haggis. If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, remember to like and subscribe and give the show a rating. You can also help keep the show going by becoming a Patreon where you'll get early access to all episodes. Or check out my range of merch on my store. Links are in the episode description. Thanks for listening.